trying to come up with smart controls to figure this all out and how it can intelligently understand how we're consuming energy and matching that patterns with what we need it to be because the future of energy is going to be smart buildings that know how to consume, when to consume, and how to dispatch the local assets. Welcome to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast featuring conversations with leaders of the energy transition hosted by Smart Energy Decisions' own Deborah Channel. In each episode of Smart Energy Voices, Deborah digs deep with industry movers and shakers to reveal insights you can learn from in their stories, personalities, and visions for the future. All right, let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Smart Energy Voices. I'm Deborah Channel, Editorial and Research Director here at Smart Energy Decisions, and your new host of this podcast series. If you've been enjoying the show so far, please take a minute to leave us that five-star review. Today, we want to share a keynote from our recent Net Zero Forum, and our guest is Chris Thurston, Director of Energy and Sustainability at Lineage Logistics. This is a company that has a real vision of what the sustainable warehouse of the future should be. And it's one with best-in-class energy efficiency. It generates 100% of its power requirements physically on-site. And it also has a zero-emission or reduced GHG fleet of 2,000 vehicles. And finally, investments in infrastructure that distribute excess clean power. Chris Thurston explains why this path isn't easy. And with more than 60 projects with unique challenges for each one, we shouldn't be surprised, especially when considering his focus is on how to ensure financial viability on this journey to net zero. He covers a lot, so let's dive in. So if you're anything like me, when I joined Preferred Freezer Now now Lineage, have no idea what a cold storage warehouse is. Uh, it's a giant box of freezer. It's the Amazon of food. We have about 450 locations around the world. Lineage is built on acquisition, one of which I was a part of years ago. Cold storage historically has been very fragmented. And Lineage started in 2009, piggybacking off of what Americold did by buying one small site in Seattle, Washington, and has since grown to be the largest in the world, acquiring Millard in 2014, making them the second largest in the world. And when they acquired my former company, we became the biggest in the world. We've since five times that growth, and we're now a $5 billion company on a path towards IPO. We operate across a few different segments. Of course, the core business is the physical assets and the REIT business owning warehouses, but about 15% of our revenue comes from ancillary activities with transportation, mostly drayage and LTL type freight movement and cold chain, of course, as well as a rail company that we acquired, which rents out rail cars to customers, both in a refrigerated capacity. And we also have some smaller operations, uh, brokerage and facilitating ocean freight, you know, just sort of vertically in line with our core business, which is cold chain logistics. I believe we're the third largest REIT in the world, still private, of course. The REIT has many tax advantages. We don't pay income tax and distribute a healthy dividend. It increases shareholder value. It's a very attractive investment. And so we are essentially a bank in many ways and recession-proof, but people always have to eat. That's a little bit about lineage. When we talk about energy at lineage, I like to use this slide to sort of show you. You imagine that most of our energy consumption on site comes from 
the refrigeration capacity, about 85% of the electric load, with about 10% coming from battery charging, moving all the forklifts around within the freezer, and then the remaining 5%, sort of your ancillary type services with LED lighting and office equipment and that sort of stuff. Our journey with sustainability and energy, ironically, began, I guess, about 10 years ago in our Avon, Massachusetts site. We started with a one megawatt solar project. It would be the first solar project of many. I was the accountant supporting that region, and I stepped in to solve a problem because we turned it on. It didn't work correctly, and we didn't get the savings that we were hoping to achieve. And so my finance background is a little bit unique in pursuing energy. It's most typically an engineering function, but we took that project, which was a problem-solving project, and we turned it into you know a very large, physically asset-focused approach over the next 10 years, rolling out many other initiatives, but always with a keen focus on making projects pencil, which is the, the title of the discussion, is the way in which we go about pursuing these projects is very much financially motivated. It makes sense on paper. It's the right thing to do for the environment, but it's also the right thing to do for lineage, right thing to do for all of our customers who benefit from lower prices in food. When you talk about energy physically on site, we use about 0.8 kWh per cubic foot, about 25 kWh per square foot. That makes us an energy-intensive operation, but not the most energy-intensive operation. And you'll notice I'll quote many statistics throughout my presentation because this is our approach to solving these challenges is with numbers and with these statistics. It's how we raise cash. It's how we convince our executive team, our investors to pursue these initiatives because ultimately, as I said, they have to make sense on paper to pursue them. We started out with that one solar project and then went on to do 20 more or so additional projects throughout New Jersey and uh, Chicago and California where the economics made a lot of sense, the low-hanging fruit. But over that time, sustainability became more of a focus. And we started getting pressure to say, well, what is your sustainability strategy? Is it just that you're doing solar panel or what does that mean? And so we challenged ourselves to think about what would a good strategy be and how did solar fit within it? Was it the entire strategy? Was it not related to it at all? Because sustainability can mean many different things and sometimes it's not so clear what you're hoping to achieve. And being a physically asset-focused company, we thought, why not make our sustainability approach physically focused? So our strategy is we take a physical approach to net zero where we want you to come to our buildings and see sustainability live in action beyond just the solar panels, but every other carbon-emitting source that you might see on site. So if you take a look at our warehouse, obviously you can figure that we're using a lot of electricity from refrigeration, but that refrigerant source also has a high GWP component where we're using Freon. You'll also notice that the truck traffic is actually the biggest carbon emitting source. However, the way that they scope these emissions out, we only control about 4% of all the transportation that comes on site. And so when we publish our numbers, it's actually a smaller component of the total. It's about three quarters of our emissions are coming from electricity generation, about 15% from the transportation fuels and about 10% from the Freon on site. And most of that has to do with who actually owns the transportation equipment. But consistent with our approach to it being a physical one, 
We don't make that same distinction. We know that any prudent person, when they come on site, will see all the trucks coming in and out and realize that that's a critical thing to address if we're going to call ourselves net zero or sustainable. So when we think about the physical approach, it starts with having the most energy efficient assets in the world. What do we do with energy efficiency? I don't know if you're able to read all of this small text here, but we tried to highlight as many things as possible. Ultimately, you're removing heat inside of the building. And so we have this carve out on the dock with the high-speed roll-up freezer doors. The attempt there is to not let any warm air get into the freezer. We also want to build them as tall as possible because we see greater energy efficiency the taller the building gets. Our tallest building is 120 feet tall. Cold storage historically is about 40 feet tall, but the average height of our buildings is somewhere between 60 and 70 feet. And so our uh, usage per cubic foot is about half of our biggest competitor as a result. We have the most energy efficient assets. We also have dehumidification systems on the dock. They are typically natural gas powered. The dock is usually 35 degrees. The freezers for the most part are negative five, but we have a few different type of operations where we might do blast freezing or store ice cream that would require a colder temperature and some cross docking type activity, which is usually cooler based. But the majority of the freezers are about negative five and that dock is sort of a buffer zone. And a lot of times when the heat comes in, when hot air meets cold air, it creates humidity. So this uh, improves our efficiency. I think 94% of all the square footage throughout our network has LED lighting installed. And we do have active projects to replace the remaining 6% so that, you know, we're using the most efficient lighting that's available. The biggest energy efficiency improvement in the last 20 years in cold storage is actually the underfloor heat. When you have all that freezing occurring, the floor can heave. So you have to heat the floor uh, so that you don't get cracks in the floor. And we actually take the heat off of our compressors and we run it through a glycol loop underneath the floor. It's a lot more expensive to build up front, but it is cheaper to operate over a lifetime and of course less carbon intensive. In a building, we do have a couple of assets that use electric underfloor heating, which is cheaper to install, more expensive to operate over the term. And at a freezer, this might be surprising, it can be 20% of the building's total usage to heat the floor through electricity. One of the issues is that this isn't something you can do retroactively, at least not currently, but it's on our radar. It's something we're trying to solve for consistent with the physical approach. Somehow we're going to try to find a way to solve for that. Once we have the most energy efficient buildings, our next step is to generate as much clean power on site, which the obvious being solar panels on top of the roof, it's the easiest to do right now. We've also installed mainspring generators, which are currently running off of natural gas, but also have the ability to run off of any clean fuel that we choose. And we have active pilots to install biodigesters on site to use food waste as energy. We've also looked into ammonia generation on site, green hydrogen. Right now, most of these are cost prohibitive, but consistent with our approach of getting creative to make it pencil, we constantly search for incentives. If the incentives don't exist, we make every attempt to create them with the local governments and customer collaboration. There's a lot of people passionate about this stuff, and it's actually pretty easy to find the money if you can put numbers to it to tell them, here's the why. And Here's how you're going to make it work. As we generate as much clean power on site, many times we're doing it to a point of excess. And the next step would be to find local ways to distribute all of that excess power. 
via the EV charging, truck charging. Our trailers are refrigerated and typically they're burning diesel to keep the trailer cold inside. And of course, you've got the trucks idling, sitting there waiting to pull up. To a lesser extent, you have the employee vehicles, about 80 to 100 employees on site. They're starting to drive electric cars. So our strategy has been from an EV charging perspective, keeping in mind what the demographics are at each site and who's pursuing electric cars. How can we help them pursue switching to electric cars? We've installed six EV chargers at every one of our California sites, and we're creating a roadmap for how we'll add those units to every site and provide it as a free benefit to our employees. It solves two problems at the same time, the carbon emission problem as well as employee retention problem, which is a critical thing probably for all of us at the current moment. From a truck charging perspective with containers, This was challenging, and we came about it in a number of different ways because we knew that having container plugs on site would reduce the carbon emissions from the diesel burn of running the trailers, but it wasn't clear to us how you create a business case around that, and can you charge for that, or are you just providing free electricity in lieu of burning fuel? So we went market by market and just sort of tried to understand what is the truck trap, what are the patterns, and and how can we monetize it. And we came up with a few different benefit streams, the first of which with the port congestion, it helped our customers avoid detention and demerge charges at the port when they bring in containers. So we provided a service to store your containers on site. It allowed them to pull their container out of the port timely, and we were able to profit off of selling that storage and providing free electricity where otherwise those containers would have been burning diesel to keep the food cold. It also provides some operational flexibility. We're not always able to unload and load at the same time, and so we're able to park the containers off-site or off the loading dock and keep them burning with the electricity, which has an efficiency benefit reduced over time and operational benefit, and so this allows us to continue to roll these out. So we try to have about 20 plugs per site, It does increase our electric load, as many of these things are going to do. And so this is why all of those things work together, generating as much clean power on site to distribute it. So it requires some dynamic nature, which is going to be in my last slide here, of understanding not just where your electric load is now, but where it's going to go. And how are you weaving it all together, keeping all of those things in mind and making sure that you have enough power on site to do all of these crazy things that you'd like to do. You know, where possible, if we can do this on-site generation and avoid the huge electrical infrastructure upgrades from the utilities, that's always a great thing as well. The utilities don't like to hear that, but, you know, it's the easiest path for us, the cheapest path, and the least carbon-intensive path. So this is just how we choose to pursue it. From a truck charging perspective, the truck charging is not there yet for many reasons. The technology is still developing for the Class 8 trucks. So far, what we've done is we're committing to a pilot, which we plan to start this year. The issue with electric trucks is they're heavier, which reduces the payload, which any efficiency that we could promise to our customers from reduced fuel costs is going to be eaten up by them having to make more shipments because they can't put as much food in the containers. We recognize this. We're part of a lobby group right now petitioning Congress to work with the DOT to eliminate batteries from the weight calculation, which could possibly solve for that. But these are, again, you know, creative ways to come up with solving for these solutions. It's a challenge. It's, a, it's an obstacle. But we're trying to figure out a way through it so that we can achieve what we're trying to rather than just point out 
how it's not working. So we're going to pilot this truck to better learn the positives and negatives about these zero emission vehicles. We're probably going to have it haul empty containers back to the port to solve for the weight issue until this approval gets put through. We've looked at hydrogen as well. It doesn't seem to be as economically sensible to do as an electric truck. It's significantly more expensive and the fuel infrastructure just isn't there. But we look at it constantly to see, has it improved? Where is it going? Is there any way that we can fund it to have it make sense through grants or other opportunities? And we're just not there yet. And of course, As I mentioned, 96% of the transportation that comes onto site is not our fleet. And so while we're pursuing modifying our fleet, we view our role in that 96% as supporting the charging infrastructure as our customers and third-party carriers transition to zero emission vehicles. They haven't made such aggressive moves in the U.S., but we have a lot of pipeline for this in Europe and international locations who who tend to be a little more aggressive about this stuff. And so it's just, again, constant communication, understanding what their business case is. In a lot of cases, part of their challenge is not having the ability to charge along the path. And so we're that perfect point in the cycle to be that gas station for them where they know they can rely on fast charging with reduced downtime because they have to sit there while we unload their truck anyway. This is sort of just another way of framing up Everything that I had just gone over from a net zero perspective, it's actually pretty simple when you think about it. It's just a few different sources of carbon emissions and identifying what those alternatives are. I'll just go through them really quick. It's about 10% of our sites that still use Freon. Most of them do use ammonia, which is a non-GWP refrigerant. Freon has many benefits from a business case perspective. It's very expensive to replace Freon. It's become an outlaw in many geographies. And It's also much more energy efficient to use ammonia than Freon. The question is how much more efficient and putting numbers to it. Quantifying the energy efficiency impact as well as the carbon credit impact. We are a seller of carbon credits and not a retirer because we think that prudent people will put more value in seeing these initiatives than having them transact on paper. We put no value in that. I think I've hit on the remainder of these other than office heating. Just in the Northeast, we use natural gas units. This is actually one of the cheaper ones to replace and and switch to electric and is every bit as efficient. Some of these technologies are more developed than others, uh, as I mentioned with the hydrogen vehicles, but we understand the full scope and we know what we need to study. And even if it doesn't work right now, we'll constantly update it for the latest information to figure out when does it pencil. Some really cool things that we've done along the way is it's not just how much and the quantity of what we're doing, but the quality of it. We think that possibly there will be a day that we could run a box completely independent of the utilities and doing it on our own because they're just not moving as fast as we need them to. Power is becoming less reliable, more expensive, and we just think that we could do it better. So this example is a project we did in Salem. It actually started in Colton where we had the first freezer to generate 100% of its power on site. Using those statistics that I pointed out before, typically if we go wall-to-wall on our freezers, we can do about 1% of the square footage in KWDC for solar, which depending on the temperature of the building can cover about 40% of the load from a net perspective. Now, I mentioned the different temperatures we keep. If we go to a warmer temperature building, that 
percentage is going to increase. In Colton, it is a Walmart crosstalk facility that's about 40 degrees, 35, 40 degrees. So we went wall to wall with solar there and it covered 73% of the total power consumption and put in a mainspring unit to cover the rest via natural gas generation. And we accomplished on a net basis producing 100% of its power on site. We wanted to go one step further because a lot of the feedback we got was, well, you're still producing it from natural gas. It's not 100% green. So we said, okay, challenge accepted. And we've picked another site. This is in the Pacific Northwest, a little bit of a different business model. This does a lot of freezing of harvest sites when you harvest the fruits and vegetables out of the ground. It all comes in over three months of the year. And it's about 80% of your power usage for the year comes in those three months. Then there's no activity other than sending out a couple of trucks per day. So it uses less energy than most other sites. We sized out a solar solution plus battery. And as you can see from the graph here, it will produce 100% of its power on site from clean power, although it will still pull a small amount of power from the utility in these off months. And we recognize that criticism and are figuring out how can we make the building smarter to reduce its usage and pair it uniquely with the battery so that we can continue that progression of generating our power, generating it from clean power, and then one day completely disconnecting it from the grid and doing it all on site. These are challenges. We recognize that it's not there right now, but it's it's not impossible. It just takes you know a dedicated focus and putting numbers to it and getting funding. Another example here is we try to go the extra step and at this particular, this was uh, Portland General Electric, we invited them to come on site before we submitted the application to just talk it through. And just by having that conversation, it turns out that they were looking to do a project and they actually offered us an incentive that covered 100% of the battery just by having the conversation with them. And so sometimes it's not just here's the incentives that are out there. Sometimes it takes forcing those conversations, communicating exactly what you're trying to achieve because you never know who you're going to meet. It's one of the reasons I come to these conferences and take so many cold calls because you never know who's going to come up with that next great idea or how they can help you and how you can work together. This last slide here, this is our continuous cycle that I talked about is that we've already done this once and mapped it out in a way that I hope makes sense, but it's a continuous cycle. It's continuously planning, figuring out, putting numbers to it, working in the financials, the energy efficiency metrics, the carbon impact, and then making it into a cycle where we're planning, evaluating, executing, and then replanning, re-executing, re-evaluating. This is our energy team's operational cycle. It is financially motivated, of course, because of its leader, but we also have the pursuit of the latest and greatest technologies. You know, we also, I didn't hit on it really a lot, but the freezers have uh, the impact to shift their load with no impact to the operation for the most part. And so that's another thing that we try to utilize in this planning is taking advantage of that operational flexibility. It, of course, needs to be automated for it to be scalable. In a lot of cases, we still do this manually. But as I mentioned in the Salem project, we're trying to come up with smart controls to figure this all out and how it can intelligently understand how we're consuming energy and matching that patterns with what we need it to be because the future of energy is going to be smart buildings that know how to consume, when to consume, and how to dispatch the local assets to match that all from clean power sources. 
I love what Chris said about the future of energy will be in smart buildings that know how to consume, when to consume, and how to dispatch the local assets to match that all from clean power sources. A worthy goal, very well stated. So thanks, Chris, for joining us and sharing your insights. I'd also like to thank you, our community of listeners, for tuning into this podcast and being part of the Smart Energy Decisions family. If you enjoyed the episode, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and tell your colleagues and peers all about us. To learn how you can become part of the next Smart Energy Decisions event, just click on the link in the show notes for more information. We're honored to have the opportunity to share these conversations with leaders of the energy transition in this podcast, on our website, and at our events, all in the interest of helping you make those smart energy decisions. Thanks for listening to Smart Energy Voices, an SED podcast. Digest the insights from today's episode and take action on the ideas that have inspired you. Join us every Friday for conversations with smart energy leaders. We also invite you to check out another SED podcast, Beyond the Meter. Each episode of Beyond the Meter features innovative energy projects and initiatives by large electric power users. To keep up to date with trends and happenings in the energy transition, visit smartenergydecisions.com to register for our daily newsletter and become part of the Smart Energy Decisions community. 